to New Books and Poetry. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. Glad to be back after a holiday hiatus and excited to introduce our guest. Rachel Menes is the author of The Glad Hand of God Points Backwards, winner of the 2013 Walt McDonald First Book Prize from Texas Tech University Press and the chapbook No Silence in the Fields. She teaches composition and creative writing at Carnegie Mellon University and is a member of Agni's editorial staff. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's begin with a poem. Would you please read How to Make a Jewish Poem on page 33? Yes, absolutely. How to Make a Jewish Poem. What makes this poem Jewish? Nobody's blessed it yet. Nobody's named it. Named it again in Hebrew. Put that name on a kiddish cup. Filled that cup with wine, purple as a bruise. Who's going to march it up and down the aisles? Dress and undress it like a newborn at the altar. Kiss the book that taps it from the pews. Where are the bobby pins to stick the lace to this poem's crown, cover its head on the Sabbath? Where's this poem's sense of ritual, its litany of ticks, its love of counting? Let's call this poem Rivka, also Becky, also Rose, an ancient relative this stanza's never met. Let's yoke it to the ox of rules. Let's light a candle after dark, smash a glass under its husband's foot, circumcise its wailing red-faced sons, watch it multiply into a book. Some poems will remember, some will not. Sit Shiva for its passing once it ends. Thank you. I love how this piece interrogates itself and how it comes in halfway through the collection as though it is, in turn, interrogating the entire collection, its Jewishness, its desire for category. Um, could you tell us about this poem? Yeah, um, it's just wonderful to hear you describe it that way. Uh, as I was working on the collection, I was asking, I was interrogating myself, I would say, in many of those similar ways about my Jewishness, about how to define that Jewishness, as I've gotten older, and it's presented some friction in other various areas of my life and my belief set in my feminism, in reflecting back on what's happened to my family. And yet I found myself writing this book, despite all of this this friction and all of these questions, and in writing the book, I think, found some, maybe the path towards answer, it's hard to say that this has all been, all these questions have been resolved, but in, in working on this, I found that and also reading a lot of liturgy, reading Jewish prayers that, even if they're not lineated, feel a lot like poetry to me, um, wanted to think about it in a way that was reflective and sort of meta-narrative, um, a one layer out, how, how this book was coming together and for what reason. Um, so that's where I started. And maybe it's a Jewish thing to ask questions over and over, but that's the one that this poem took, was, was that just not really seeking to resolve those questions, but just pose them in over and over and along the arc that sort of resembles the arc of the human life. I really love that explanation because it's it's kind of what I felt as I was reading um, reading the collection, and, and we're going to get much more into narrative and folklore and family history and um, categorization. But first, I want to learn a little bit more about you. You came from um, Philadelphia, and you're now in Pittsburgh, from what I understand. Yes, yes. I've uh, in between that move, I went to graduate school at Penn State, so I've been slowly inching my way west across the state over the last, I guess, uh, ten or so years. Okay. Um, and what was your household like as a child? Did you have any siblings? 
Yes, I have two younger sisters. I'm the oldest daughter of three, and that has informed probably more than so much else in my life has informed my identity and my relationship to my to my gender. And um, it's hard to imagine having an older sibling. I, I feel very protective of my younger sisters, uh, and some of that shows up, I think, in the collection. Uh, and I come from a, a line of my, my grandmother, who I write about in the book, is also one of three girls. So we have this sort of weird superstitiousness um, about that, I think. Um, a lot of women in my family, and I think that shows up in the book as well. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a, a busy household uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs, a very warm household, and a very Jewish household in a reformed, progressive way. Uh, we I was especially up until a certain point in my childhood, very active in synagogue life. And my mother especially was too, um, but grew up in a very liberal and progressive approach to that, um, which is different than some of what I see here in Pittsburgh in some of the more Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods, which is again, that's something I write about a bit in the book. Uh, Jewishness is difficult to define and, and follow such a spectrum. Um, yeah. that it's something I've thought about a lot. I think with any religion or ideological mindset, there's varying degrees, um, and it's very hard to lump people together into yes. one category. Um, but the interesting thing about Judaism is that in and of itself, it ha- it is a heritage. Um, I mean, because of the diaspora, there's not necessarily um, a physical location that people can call home or hearken back to, so yeah. it becomes like communal. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite things about Judaism. Um, so who was the first writer to, um, to whose work you connected to? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great question. I came to poetry pretty early as a, as a reader. And in high school, I started reading actually the, the beat poets. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I think that happened because my, my first love artistically in terms of participating in it was music. I've read as a child uh, voraciously and sometimes at the expense of having friends in elementary school. Um, But I always played music and I wrote music. And when I was in high school, I was listening to a lot of music uh, that my father had recommended to me and friends from the 60s. So I was listening to a lot of music that led me to the beat poets. And um, I started, especially, I think my first immersion into Jewish poetry was through Ginsburg. Hell yeah. Yeah, and and the way that he writes about Judaism and his mother and his his heritage, in a way that is not is not reverent and is not careful or um, observant, but is sort of wild and sexual and uh, just alive and and sometimes dirty uh, and very much immersed in place and sound. And from there, I started reading. I, I left the beats pretty quickly, I think, because as a woman, sometimes um, reading them is an interesting experience. And I was looking for women voices, too, as I was coming of age. And I then found my way to Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, which I think makes a lot of sense for a 15 and 16-year-old girl. And I, mean, I, I read them still. Anne Sexton is probably one of my the influences I draw from most. But they were my where I started reading women writers and women poets. And um, from there, studied literature in college and sought out um, some Jewish women's voices, including my, my mentor at graduate school, which is Robin Becker, um, Alicia Ostriker, mm-hmm. Maxine Kuhlman. Um, but as I've gotten older, I have read much more contemporary work. I think I started, um, like I said, I started in the 60s and have made my way forward. Um, good place to start. I, yeah. I got that feeling from Ginsburg, too, and I know that you mentioned earlier that... Um, 
what was it the, like the cadence of the Jewish prayer? Yeah, is part of yeah, because he has that very incantory sermon like quality to his reading. Yes. Oh, yes. Totally. Um, so the title of the book, um, I know that in the introduction, Robert Fink goes a long way in explaining it, um, but I'd love to hear from you how and why you chose this title. Yeah, well, I, I'll start with sort of a humorous observation, that, which is something that, especially since this is my first book, it never occurred to me to think about. Um, but from a sort of dinner table or dinner party perspective, when people ask me what the book is called, um, I've regretted picking such a long title um, because I'm usually asked to repeat it about four times and people usually still look confused. So um, I, I did not pick it for that reason. Um, I, In writing about my family's history, I this book started in terms of research um, as a, a thesis in, um, in college, which was not creative writing, which was a, a sort of something I did to finish my complete degree, which was looking at literature of trauma in the wake of the Holocaust. And uh, I read story after terrible story and was able to connect some of those to my own family stories and thought about the Jewish nature of, which is part of our religion, but also like, I think just a part of our age as a people, the, the constant looking back and reflecting. Uh, and yet we have this hugely terrible part of our history that we are constantly looking back to. And just this week was the 70th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. So just this week, again, where I'm reading survivor stories and hearing about this terrible history over and over. So I'm thinking about looking backwards and how difficult it is and yet how important. Um, and also sort of imagining, I know, again, this could be a Jewish, a Jewishness or not, but the, the sort of lightness or humor that we sometimes take in approach to our history, despite its weight and its darkness. And so I was sort of trying to imagine a God that leads us through that with both levity and, um, and seriousness all sort of mixed together. So that's a lot of where it comes from, the idea of being directed back through our history, not just with a, a firm hand or a, a hand that is in the process of reminding us of our great and terrible past, but also one that's that is more, maybe it's more complex than yeah. that. That's a much cooler explanation than I had anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. I'm glad, to, I'm glad that that's true. <laughs> um, so let's hear two poems back to back, if we could. Okay. Uh, yeah. Would you please read The Jewish Woman in America 2010 on page 9, and then The Jewish Woman in America 1941 on page 13. The Jewish Woman in America 2010. I see them in Giant Eagle buying the same soap and eggs as I buy. At the Squirrel Hill Library, their sons garbed as God prefers, even in hot July, consoled by the talit, trailing blessed white strings through Forbes Avenue dirt. The women cover their heads, their skirts, making dark mysteries of their legs. All faith, they show me the fabric of inaccessible glory, the rents in my own life. My God holds nobody responsible. He lives in the thick air over Philadelphia, likes it there, doesn't speak to me much, if at all. My God accepts the muddle of our lives, reformed, distracted, desirous of strangers in other wilder places. As you wish, he says, and retreats into the sunset alone. From him I rest a path without limits, two strong and willful legs to bear to a street full of eyes. The Jewish Woman in America, 1941. The scrubwoman works on her knees, hands of lye and peeling skin, seamstress, home cook, polisher of silver and gold. 
guttural, unused German sticks in the throat like an errant fishbone. The Jewish immigrant on her knees, sorting unpacked child's clothes. The apartment rattling with strange English words. Baseball, highway, petticoat. In the dark, a mustard yellow star alights coy from the ship's stored garments, winking at no one. In the window, the skookle steams and stretches, the city's factories and schools alive with immigrant sweat. The scrub woman dreams at night in German. She flies over oceans, first a bomb, then a boat. Thus glass covers her body, shards glint like small stars. Days, she's two dollars for a well-tucked hem, a meal for a washed tile floor. Thank you. Um, the first poem ends the first section and the second poem begins the second. It's a really smart placement. They're put directly in conversation with one another while still being clearly delineated. Um, how did you choose to do this? What, what was the impulse? Well, the, the way that this book came together in its order was a process that evolved over a longer period than I expected. And this being my first manuscript, I think I, I was under the mistaken impression that I would be finished working with it at some arbitrary point. Um, and about halfway through, I had been sending it out to a few places, uh, a good friend of mine and fellow poet. Uh, the poet Sarah Blake, who was in my graduate program with me, said, let me, if you're stuck, let me take a look. And she and I together sort of worked back and forth to discuss. I had originally had this in a much more true chronological order. And the what's now the second section of the book was the first section. And it did not, it, it worked in that I think it helped maybe with some of the narrative, but in every other way, it didn't serve the, the book as well as I was hoping. And in, in pulling things out and moving things around, partially with the help of, of my friend and, and getting those new eyes, those sort of foreign or outside eyes can really help illuminate some of that friction that, that you mentioned when you, it's, it's nice to have another person point those things out. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in thinking about being liberated from chronology, I was able to play a little bit with disrupting the matrilineal order, which I think this, what I was hoping to do here was to put myself in the contemporary scene before jumping into the past. And uh, this, the Jewish woman in America, 1941, is loosely about my great-grandmother. And so I'm leaping pretty far back in the order in, in doing it this way. But And I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that, you, that that's something that you're sensing. That, oh, totally. that was definitely, definitely a part of that. As soon as I think that I'm done with a poem, I take the last stanza and move it right to the front and just wait for, like, little explosions. Mm. Because, you know, that, that, that's what happens. As soon as, and I love that phrase you just used, liberated from chronology, because, you know, our mind obviously puts things in that way for a reason, because that's how our memory works, um, yes. unless you're yeah. talking about, you know, crazy essay narratives. But um, to free the mind from that, to kind of, you know, unleash it, um, it allows us to look at things from completely different perspectives, because now you not only have the, the speaker of the book um, talking about herself, but then also um, looking back at the great-grandmother while the great-grandmother's looking forward to her, and that's awesome. Yeah, it's completely awesome. Yeah. Um, so this is in four parts. What Did you originally have it in four parts? It was, yes, I was... I think <laughs> it's funny looking back. Um, yes, it was. It was in four parts. It may have in earlier versions been in three parts. Um, the yes, that's correct. It was in three parts with that first section that sort of lying out on its own, but, but with uh, not with as many pieces in it. The two sections that have largely stayed intact 
within themselves is the second section and the last section. Mm-hmm. Um, that I felt those two groups of poems needed proximity um, for narrative reasons and, and for um, some thematic reasons. Uh, other than that, things moved around quite a bit. And that fourth section, um, Elijah, was difficult for me to place because of that long poem in parts. I, I didn't want to interrupt it, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to put it with too much else, and so I sort of found a way in in bridging the third and the final uh, section and by inserting it where I did. Um, but it's it's mostly stayed. It's similar. Things have moved between more than they've been uh, added or subtracted at, at the section level. Okay, great. Um, would you please read I Don't Know the Story, But I Can Tell the Story on page 45? Yeah. I don't know the story, but I can tell the story. It goes. Grandmother grabbed me from my mother's grasp like there had been some sort of error, like the 36 hours of labor and contractions had come from her own long, empty belly. I was immediately hers. Of course, I remember nothing from this night. Newest to earth, I'm held in the mouth of my family narrative. She moved quick. She made demands. The three of us in the sterile room, the first grandchild, a swaddle of perfect wet rage. The three of us already lost to each other. What's given must have its take. To fill arms, arms must empty. And so my grandmother left my mother for the longest moment without her first child, open her reach to me, who should have fought and only cried, who can summon not a moment of this fissure, who grew up to write down the truth and the lies together who remembers the future, who reads the past first, who holds up her hands to be held and waiting feels the night, who builds the museum before the victor comes to claim her dead. When I finish this poem, I just said out loud, hot damn. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream right there. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you, you killed it. You killed it with the end. I love this one. Um, for the purpose of my own writing, I've been very interested in family folklore. Very few families have, you know, published volumes of history. It's mainly passed down orally. How did you become aware of the stories that appear in many of your poems? Some I was aware of as a child. I knew from, and it's hard to remember the moments when I first heard these stories because a lot of them did not come directly from my grandparents' generation. I think part of that is because they're difficult memories and they're not they're not memories that necessarily should go right to a young child when we're talking about the Holocaust. Um, but I think as I moved through my Jewish education and we did learn about the Holocaust, my mother made it known to me about some of the experiences that my grandmother and great-grandmother had gone through and, and their family, my great-grandfather and my great-aunts. Um, and the problem with that, with this process has always been that the stories have, have changed and, uh, grown different over time, which is not something that facts are supposed to do, right? We're supposed to, you know, like find them in a book and and know that, know the history and it's, it's inarguable, but there's all sorts of reasons why this has happened in my family. And some of it, I believe having done a lot of research now is just the nature of trauma that, we we do change our stories to protect our psyches from what we've experienced, which I think makes a lot of sense in my grandmother's case. And part of it is just the fallibility of memory. And there's I write about this in the book. I think that sometimes the external narratives we're exposed to, maybe things from television or from other survivors, kind of get mixed in. My grandmother was 11 when she came to the United States, so she was not 
an adult, she was she all of her memories are child's memories, which means they're even more um, influenced, I think. Um, but it was as I was growing up. Once I uh, started graduate school, I was in a nonfiction class just as an elective. I was there for poetry, and I thought, well, this is the this is the class when I'm supposed to write this story, right? Because it's memoir, mm-hmm. and I struggled greatly to get accuracy from my family. I interviewed my grandmother. Um, she told different stories. I sat her down twice and I got two different versions of the same thing. Um, and I thought, well, this feels authentic to me that her difficulty in remembering. And so maybe it doesn't belong in memoir where I don't need to sign a contract or something that says, you know, this is the capital T truth, uh, to explore some of that difficulty. Um, so I started writing, unfortunately, the, the one thing I, I regret more than anything, uh, my grandfather, my grandmother's husband, this is all on my father's side, uh, passed away when I was 14. And he, uh, part of his story is, is missing. And we don't, we just don't have it in, in the complete accurate way. And I don't, I was too young to know to ask for it. Mm-hmm. But now I feel, I do feel a great loss there um, beyond the loss of the person just thinking we have this big gap that um, my grandmother has sort of filled in with some stuff that we don't think is true. But, you know, so it's, it's been it's been a struggle, but it, I felt called to to tell the story and not just out of duty um, or out of a sort of Jewish sense of we're big on this remembering thing, but, mm-hmm. but also because I found, I found it explaining a sort of almost like an origin story, a lot of how I see the world and, and how I've come to understand things as an adult and what my childhood was like. And I, I found that writing through it was the only way to really capture it and understand it and, and look at it closely. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like we have the same grandmother. Yeah. <laughs> might. Oh, wow. That's, that's, yeah. That's another reason why I think this is so important is we get lost in our, and, and sometimes I think isolated in our family histories, but they are, even if they're particular, there are a lot of universalities, a lot of things we all share in our past that yeah. I think are important. In, in my own writing, um, nonfiction, I've had to kind of let go of that need for control because, of you know, of course I want the black and white. I want what happened when to whom and how. Um, but I, I had to kind of accept that these stories, as they're passed on, they live inside the body of the listener, and they get changed inside that body, just like the genes are passed down, and, mm-hmm. and the stories become part of the family. And any way that they are altered, it, it stays true to your family line. So I, I think that even through their subjectivity, that we can still call them nonfiction because there's there's still truisms. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So the figures um, that, like you were talking about, of the grandmother and grandfather, they're pretty constant in the collection. Um, as I was reading it, I got the impression that this book was going to be like an actual member of your family, like a living, breathing extension of your family tree. Because this, yeah, it, it ties into what we're talking about, but this doesn't feel like, um, you know, a chronological, this happened when. Like, th- right. this is an entity you've created. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, we talk about it a lot in the family now. Um, <laughs> it, has, it has a presence, that's for sure, um, which is something I was nervous about, actually. But um, I think that, that's a very powerful thing to hear about about your collection, that, that it's felt that way. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so let's hear um, a piece where the grandfather figure appears. Um, would yeah. you read The Will of God on page 15? Yeah, here we go. The Will of God. On a military bus, grandfather sits next to Alfred Dreyfus. History doesn't matter here. Like Dreyfus, innocent prisoner for decades, God is patient, flexible, 
willing for strangers to meet on a bus in any universe. Jewish soldiers for secular wars, the pair said swathed in khaki and steel, somewhere in nowhere France. Or better, over powdered eggs in Poland, they fiddle with their camps, their caps, their laces, waiting for deployment to the camps. God, with two hands, could cover the eyes of both men if he so desired. Or, grandfather finds himself in front of Dreyfus's grave in Montparnasse, a rose suddenly pressed in his palm. He knows the words to the Kaddish, says it reflexively, the tears that come for the stranger belong to God. Or back on the bus, each man rubs the corner of impossible photographs, tiny granddaughters soft and red. Look at her, Dreyfus says, pointing, and her, says grandfather. Neither finds more words, the future in front of them smudged, undeniable. The girls, newborn, screaming for air, the pair can hear them circling their ears with pain, or is it promise, that learned search for oxygen that causes them both to wring their tired hands, unprepared to touch babies with their war-ruined palms. Thank you. Um, on its back, I'd like to hear a somewhat different approach to the grandfather figure. Could we um, hear 4,000 Shoes on page 26? Yeah. 4,000 Shoes. Ten years ago in the D.C. Museum, Grandfather and I examine that dusty pile of soles and laces stretching from floor to ceiling, wall to wall to wall. How the leathers lasted, he admires, and reaches out past the barrier almost to touch them. This here is work by a craftsman. You don't see shoes like these anymore. My eyes low, archiving my cheap pleather sneakers, made by machine to fit all the feet of the world exactly the same. The still machines of Europe beside us in the museum, tamed for history. The machine of his body, valves fluttering with overuse. No, these will do you no good, my grandfather says, and points down toward the recreated train car floor. Terrible plastic things. Let's go buy you something handsome. Thank you. In these two pieces, we see very different representations of the same figure. Um, this must not have been easy. Your content is weighted and emotional. How were you able to render this into verse while still holding on to the narrative? Well, I think, actually, it's, it's interesting because both of these poems feel more emotionally true, for lack of a better way to say it, than... Um, than are actually true. And the, the first one that's obvious because Dreyfus is a historical figure living at a different time than my grandfather and they're just the similarities there. I always thought um, Dreyfus being French but also conscripted into, a, as I mentioned, a, a war that has nothing to do with his personal beliefs or religion. Um, and you mentioned the diaspora. It's interesting always to think about, um, especially in earlier centuries, uh, Jews or Jewish men in particular, in, in, as in the time that it was, um, fighting for countries that they were new to, which is something, of course, that happens all the time and all over the world, um, but raised some interesting questions for me because it seemed to suit my grandfather's history as well. Um, in the second poem, I desperately wish I had been able to go to the Holocaust Museum with my grandfather, um, but the the times I went were after he passed. And that, that room when I went for the first time, um, my grandfather, the, there is some truth in the poem in that my great-grandfather this is a different great-grandfather than I mentioned previously or set. Um, this is my father's father's father. Um, he was a, ran a shoe factory in Philadelphia where my grandfather worked and later took over. Um, so being in that room full of shoes with him would have been incredible, but it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought, 
I tried writing the poem truthfully, which is to sort of capture that longing and imagining. And then I thought, well, this is doing nothing for the actual poem and the actual narrative of the poem to, to feel that I need to mention that it's not that it never happened. So I just let myself imagine the conversation, and that's what became um, the, the second poem, 4,000 Shoes. Um, but I, I do wish I had had the chance to have those sorts of conversations with him, and that, that longing is what is what drives a lot of the poem, is that imagining and wishing it. But of course, with, with our dad, we can't we can't reach over the line or whatever it is, what, the divide, and say, you know, I really, I really wish we could have had that one last, I have so many questions for you. Um, but that, that longing, I think, is, is a lot of what's in the book, that wishing that I could do that. Mm. That makes me like this poem even more. Because who, who's to say that this is not how it would have happened um, if it could have happened? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I do. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Generally, how do your poems find their form? Uh, the pieces here do not vary greatly in length or stanza size. Was was this an intentional mechanism? I, as I've written more in the years since this book, I have felt more comfortable taking chances with either prescribed forms or um, with more experimentation and reverse. I think this this book feels unusual for me in my writing, in that I felt so driven by narrative and image that a lot of the poems I think are better served by stanzas and breaks that further the narrative as opposed to maybe highlight certain images or experiment with sound there is so as as a result there is a lot of similarity I think formally between the poems there's a lot of I guess I would use quotes around this but sonnets um, a lot of maybe 12 to 18 line poems that turn in a sonnety sort of place um, some are true sonnets some are um, I'm thinking about poems like Yardsight that are ten lines, or um, that some others that I think I've that I've read, uh, like uh, I don't know the story, but I can tell the story, which is again not quite a sonnet that's a little longer, but it's um, sixteen lines. The that I think that length and that turn, that sort of subversion that happens in a sonnet, I'm very drawn to, and I think especially in this collection, found it really helpful um, in in telling a lot of the stories and sort of mixing narrative and then the sort of heat or emotion of the poem um, or maybe the way that memory itself does sort of twist um, trying to get some of that in there Um, that makes a lot of sense to me Um, I know that forms when we choose to employ traditional forms that it normally helps us frame something that is wild in our mind Something that, that we really can't get a hold of. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, for our final poem, would you please read I Learn of Slaughter on page 41? Yeah. I Learn of Slaughter. Sunday in the supermarket, all the kosher meats expired. I think of the chicken pulled from its cage, forced to hear Hebrew as the rabbi sanctifies it, slits its throat. Last comfort for a surely Jewish terror, waiting and waiting for a death that's coming soon, death that we march from or to in all our liturgical texts, death that spelled so many from the photo albums, the dinnertime stories, don't come for us, not yet. When history says it's time, when we've worn out our welcome, grown fat from the farmer's land, lulled by the sweet sound of praising God, death will come, the knife so heavy in our neighbor's hand. Thank you. Um, so this poem, uh, Quatrain, 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 Tercet, um, and that last line, 
is present in its absence. Um, for me, I thought it was death, like the final white space, and that sent me on this downward spiral, thinking of the final white space as death for everyone. So what, what is that last line? Well, what, what does its absence mean? I, that's, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> I, I, I think, um, unfortunately, and I, unfortunately is the least, the least strong word I can think of for this, um, there is something about the diaspora that puts us always in danger. And we see that, unfortunately, again, this word that, that does us nothing un- without, you know, without fortune, um, <laughs> happening in France and in Europe right now. Um, it is certainly against, I think, a much more immediate and um, more dangerous climate for Muslims in, in Europe. But we are seeing alongside that um, a resurgence of anti-Semitism. And we see it in our recent history in the Holocaust, and we see it in Jewish, as I mentioned, Jewish liturgy, all the way as back as we've scribed, that the, the fact that we are diasporated means we belong everywhere, but it also means that um, that we belong nowhere. And, and various points in our history have proven that. I personally have experienced no more than, um, I would say, your sort of maybe garden variety anti-Semitism. And when I lived in Europe, I was both more aware and felt felt that more strongly than um, when I've my, my life here in the United States. But it's impossible to ignore what's happened to my family and, and to my the people of my religion without thinking about, as you said, that, I guess that last line, that constant fear of when, when you see something like that in the news, thinking, well, this is, it was, it was through policy and through anti-Semitism and through propaganda that, that what happened in the Holocaust happened. It was not um, sudden. It was insidious and slow. And it's something that I worry about when I read the news about what's happening now. Um, I have the privilege and the luxury to worry in a place of comfort and protection, um, which is true, I think, of most American Jews. Um, ours is not the same climate. But it is something that is, is always on my mind when I hear about what's going on. And that's where this poem, I think, tries to push, which is that there is something particularly Jewish about constantly feeling like a person that belongs somewhere else um, and the fears and the risks that come with that. I think is, is definitely something I was thinking about in that, in that empty space, as you put it in that last line, the imaginary last line. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's extremely effective. Um, cause I, I mean, I love of course, when a last line subverts the content of the poem, but leaving it blank in such a glaring way, um, it opens the poem up instead of subvert it. I mean, it, it could apply to any notion or any line and, uh, very effective. Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) so uh for our final questions um who are you reading right now oh that is a great question i love getting to talk about other other poets and other poetry i am still i i review books as well and i'm voraciously active in trying to read women and review women and that is incredibly important to me um and I have read, uh, I mentioned my friend Sarah Blake and her book's coming out in March. Uh, her, her book, Mr. West, is about Kanye West. And I'm very excited cool. that other people get to join me in reading that book. Mm-hmm. Um, I have just read two wonderful books by the poets uh, Elizabeth Cantwell and Jessica Piazza. Um, I have enjoyed reading them quite a bit. Um, more broadly, I love um, I just received the the most amazing books of 2014, uh, the new Glock and the new, and of course, the Citizen, mm-hmm. which has changed the way I think about everything as a poet, uh, form, content, uh, style, sound, exigence, 
narrative history. I mean, that book is it is incredible. It's yeah. absolutely incredible. Um, and Faithful and Virtuous Night, I, I love reading Gluck mm-hmm. because she is so, every line is instructive, I think, from as from, from, from the perspective of writing. There is no wasted word or space. There is no incorrect word. I just always marvel at reading her. Um, but both of those books, of course, have, have received quite a bit of attention in the last year, um, mm-hmm. and for good reason. Um, Jericho Brown's The New Testament has blown my mind, um, which is a book I received over the holidays. I love getting to make lists of books for Christmas and Hanukkah. It's such a wonderful thing to get. Um, So I'm sort of reading all of 2014 now because I didn't have the chance to get a lot of books this year for various reasons. Um, And I'm just sort of binging on on those. So those those are probably what's on my nightstand right now. Um, those books I just listed. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so what would you do if you couldn't write poetry? Oh my gosh. Um, if I had never, when, when I was younger, I transitioned from music to lyrics to poetry. And I think part of that is I love music. I love music. And I was a technically proficient guitar player and violinist, but I was just that. I never felt like I could create music. I could sort of perform music or play music. And when I started writing it, that, that addiction sort of grew that feeling of literal creativity of, of making instead of just appreciating or performing. Um, so I wonder if maybe, maybe had that not happened, if I would have been more adherent to, to music. Um, I also love teaching and that's fraught for me because it's a difficult climate to teach right now, especially at the college level. Um, difficult again, like unfortunately is not the right word. It's sometimes <laughs> awful and incredibly frustrating and um, insecure, but I, I love teaching and I love working with undergraduates. And I think um, I would probably still be teaching writing um, somehow if I, if I weren't writing myself. Um, but that's, um, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting place to find yourself, um, right now. When I went to graduate school for writing, I was not thinking about it professionally. I was thinking about it. I, I got, you know, you have three years and you get a, for me and when I was at Penn State, a modest stipend, but still a stipend. And I wasn't thinking about what I was going to do until I got out and realized that that's a very important question. So then a lot of writing had to, had to be put aside while I figured that out. Um, but I think, I think teaching music, um, it's hard to imagine a life without writing, though. So, <laughs> well, I think you are partially composing because there's definite music in your lines. So the violinist may be emerging elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us and sharing your family and your work. I really appreciate it. Thank you for for talking with me. It's been a real pleasure. I, I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you. This has been Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry.